history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. We're back again with another interview covering the 2022 municipal election. With me today, he's running for Ward 9, Davenport. His name is Simon Fogle. Welcome to the show, Simon. Hello. And uh, so this is your opportunity to engage with the voters and ultimately answer the questions, why are you running, why this election, and why now? Well, I suppose I'm running because uh, I've always been the kind of person to have a lot of opinions, and people always told me, well, if you want to change things and want to do it yourself, and I guess this is the time it finally happened. Um, the decision to, to run for office, it, you know, it came in stages. Um, a big influence is, of course, this, this lockdown that we just are in and just came out of and hopefully don't go back into. Um, it really jaded my my sense of trust in, in government and in the institutions in general, because um, I, I used to work for the city. I worked there for five years in transportation. My uh, my background's in, in geography. Uh, I was a cartographer. And so I worked for five years uh, in uh, in transportation field. And, you know, the reasons why we got told all the time why infrastructure couldn't get built, it was always being run around in circles. There, you know, there always a reason to, you know, um, to, to bump something down or to check with other people or to check with management. And then we saw, you know, in March of 2020, that government really can move quickly when it wants to. So after a long period of cynicism, you know, I decided to just, why not like go, go back into public life, like go, uh, you know, go try and solve the problem yourself. So um, <clears throat> in April, I led a, a, actually no, it was May, I led a Jane's walk, a Jane Jacobs uh, walking tour. I'm not sure if the, the listeners are familiar with Jane Jacobs. She was an, an urbanist in Toronto in the 20th century. Uh, her big thing was this idea of, um, of community, community development, of, of people um, being able to talk to their neighbours, to meet their neighbours organically, you know, by walking around, by seeing the streets, right, by having a, a mixed-use development, right? And so after she died, um, a number of people started putting on uh, walking tours in her honour, um, these happen every year. They're called Jane's Walks. They're hosted for free by just anybody who wants to. And mine was about um, my local community, the Junction Triangle. Um, so I lived here for eight years. I lived in Toronto my whole life. Um, and in the Junction Triangle, we have a lot of, of challenges with, with new developments. Um, so we have um, you know, these massive towers going up along DuPont Street. Um, and the question is, you know, first of all, is the infrastructure sufficient to handle it? And second, how is that going to change the um, the way that the, city, the way that the, the community, the, the neighborhood feels? Um, so my perspective on um, these, you know, these massive towers, these these brownfield developments, is that they are a consequence of um, government overregulating zoning and development. In my opinion, that they shouldn't be most of the city zoned exclusively for the use of single-family homes. I think that there's a significant market demand for new housing, and we have a housing supply issue. We don't have a housing affordability issue because of 
how much the housing costs. It's simply scarcity. And the scarcity is artificial. So that's that's one of the things I'm here to try and um, to try and fix is the, the issue of, of housing scarcity. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I read that. I led that Jane's walk and you know, people really responded to it. I, I really enjoyed this this feeling of, you know, of talking with my neighbors, people in the community. Um, and so I decided to run for um, for MPP provincially as an independent. I didn't go, I didn't just I didn't even entertain the idea of going with any of the parties because none of their platforms really resonated with me. Um, it, it's too, you know, most of them are too ideologically pigeonholed. And I just didn't like the idea of having, you know, what I say uh, have to be filtered uh, through an organization, through a, a structure that gives you permission to say this or say that. I just I just want to present myself as me to the public directly. And so I, you know, I ran for MPP independent as an independent and uh, as one would expect, I, I lost. Uh, and I had a lot of fun in the process. So I figured as soon as I'm done losing this election, I'm going to go and run for the next one, run municipally and get more active in the community, talking to people about the issues facing their day-to-day -day lives. And hopefully we can get some of this infrastructure backlog solved. Hopefully we can get some of this housing backlog solved and hopefully we can have a government that um, does the job that it's paid to do, which is to um, provide the necessary environment for economic success and not to meddle in our private lives, telling us how to live and how to where to go and all that. I really like that. You know, that's why I like municipal politics. You know, it, for me, it's you're judging maybe ju judging is the wrong word you're 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 investing in that one person not in a party there's no party there's no rules uh, stuff like like you said to have to conform to rules and have to say things a certain way you're just you're just uh focusing on the one person and and i like that um especially when that person is transparent and accessible those are two big things that oh definitely we, that we don't see right now uh, with the current administration. Um, and I'm just wondering, is that uh, something you're hearing? Um, I, I know you registered relatively uh, late in the game, but have you started door knocking yet or, or community engagement and what kind of things are you hearing that, that you can share? And then also, sorry, um, I'll shut up. I, I promise. <laughs> I'm just wondering if you have been able to flush out your, um, any part of your platform that you can share with us? Uh, yes, yeah, the platform is a living document. Um, you know, just as it was during my provincial campaign, uh, you know, it's kind of this thing where you, you figure it out as you go along. Like, um, I, I'm the type of person who, when they write something, I, I don't write it start to finish. I write it in bits and pieces here and there and let the ideas flow through each other. And then I go back and I structure the documents. I re-edit it, you know, until it's more fleshed out, until you see, um, you know, the, the dots connecting, right? So that, that's kind of how my, my brain works. Um, you know, so I, I have, uh, as a result, uh, you know, a, a platform which doesn't really conform to any one specific ideology. You know, I, I mean, there's a reason why I ran as an independent. It's because I have um, what some people have thought of as eccentric ideas. Um, it, here's one that I'm going to get out of the way right away. I want to put sirens on the buses and have them drive as if they were emergency vehicles. Can you explain that a little bit more? <laughs> oh yeah so um my, my, a lot of my focus is um you know for for getting things done in the city is is not to get too bogged down in 
you know, in, in big picture ideas, you know, these grandiose, um, you know, regional plans and focus more intently on small things that are executable in a short amount of time with a short amount of money. Uh, so one of those things for transit is uh, I want to see extended ex extended bus rapid transit, BRT. So what I want to have is um, a, a bus, bus only lane on every major arterial road that has three or more lanes. And I think this can be done very quickly. The whole project can be done in a week, you know, and it would revolutionize how quickly people move across the region. So this whole, um, <laughs> this whole uh, sirens on the buses thing, that is an extension of that kind of thinking. Um, it's, it's nothing I'm married to, but you know, I'm of the opinion that we need to get a bit creative, a bit outside the box with our solutions to, um, to building and to making things happen if we're going to you know get it out of this rut we're in where it always seems like the city is so crowded and so congested and nothing ever moves quickly right um going back to your earlier point about accessibility i think that's a huge issue i mean i think there's a that's the reason why um 57 of voters in ontario didn't show up um why most people just stayed home and said why bother nothing's going to change is because and this is much of the reason why I decided to run myself is that we have this impression that politicians, you know, our, our institutions, our government, they don't listen to us. They do what they want to do and then they tell us what they're going to do. And if they ask for our feedback, um, it doesn't change what they do. It doesn't change their behavior. So they say, OK, we're going to do this, you know, and you have no say in it. That's not that's not right. This is a democracy. The people are the ones who just should decide how their society is is governed, is um, operated. Um, and so, you know, I want to be the kind of person, you know, the kind of politician who you can flag down at the grocery store and shake the hand and, you know, voice your concerns. And I'll say, yeah, I'll get back to you on that. Or, yeah, I'll look into that. Or, you know, the kind of person who answers emails with more than just a, a boilerplate. Um, you know, the kind of person you can actually speak to like a fellow human being, because I don't make any pretenses to being above other people. That's not how um, government in a democracy works. The government in a democracy is the people. And so I, I want to maintain that accessibility throughout my entire term. Absolutely. That sounds like a great idea. And um, what sort of uh, ward concerns specific to your ward are you hearing about or, um, or or that you know about and you want to share yeah so i mean i suppose ward specific concerns uh, it would be all this new development um along dupont street so at lands and dupont there's a thousand new units going up right now at uh, dufferin and dupont there's three thousand new units going up right now um these developments are both being sold as walking distance to the the subway and I suppose they are, uh, because much of the time it is quicker to walk there than it is to wait for buses that often take 20 or 30 minutes to show up. Um, you know, so accessibility is a huge thing. Um, I, I think also, um, you know, this, this board's pretty good for cycling infrastructure, but some of it needs to be redone. Like the, the cycle tracks on Bloor Street, um, they have too many blind spots and chicanes. And I'd like to see those go back to the drawing board and, you know, get a design works that has fewer um, conflict opportunities. Um, also, uh, green space. So this is less of a concern specifically locally, but in Toronto in general, um, you know, we have so much of our green space that's just so overmanaged and um, overprogrammed. And I'd like to see a lot of it be renaturalized just to let it grow, right? Even just to have um, 
you know, the grass cut a little less often, so it can grow longer and have more, um, it breathe more oxygen out into the atmosphere. Um, you know, and just to not have uh, every single square meter of the city be so urbanized, if that makes any sense. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe some some rehauling on some of the bylaws would would help with that. With renaturalization. No, no, like uh, like easing of the bylaw laws, or maybe just outright taking some of them out. You know, we have some ridiculous bylaws in the city of Toronto. Not to get off track, but mm-hmm. um, the last I checked, I don't know if they removed it, but the last I checked, there is a bylaw that says, I, I, I'm not even joking, there is a bylaw that says it is illegal to walk your alligator on a leash on Sundays down Young Street. <laughs> it does not mention anything about any other day. So I guess Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're good. You just can't oh, do it on yeah. Sundays. It's, it's a holdover, my guess is, from uh, our um, Protestant history. You know, when everything was closed on Sundays and everything had to be shut down and they, they, they chained up the, the, the swings at the parks on Sundays. And I remember... Um, two years ago, watching that happen here because of the, the COVID lockdown. And I'm thinking this history comes full circle. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a thousand of strange, you know, outdated, unnecessary bylaws, you know, in the municipal code. Um, what I like to do is, you know, come through the thing and take a red pen to whatever doesn't need to be there. Um, because I think that's just bloat, right? That's um, unnecessary expenditure, Right. There's it's not to slag the people working in municipal licensing and standards. It's just to say that, um, you know, much of what they do isn't necessary for the, the good of the city, for the good of the people living there. Um, you know, regulation in general, it, it's, you know, helps things run smoothly. But some of these are totally overregulated. Like, for instance, um, uh, to, to be a, um, an adult dancer, a, a stripper, um, you, you need to have a license. So what you need to do is um, you, you make a an appointment with the clerk at East York Civic Center and you pay $426 and you submit a criminal record check because obviously if you have a criminal history, uh, it's dangerous for you to be taking your clothes off and having people pay you. So you know, things like that, they seem a bit strange and a bit absurd. And I, I don't really think they're necessary. You know, it's just, um, it's, it's inefficient. That's the thing. It's inefficient. I would have to agree with you on that. Um, yeah. move, moving along, I want to talk about the budget. Um, <laughs> So, you know, there's there's plenty we can say about the budget. You know, you, we have a $1.6 billion backlog in TCHC repairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as we know right now, they're saying the TTC is going to be half a billion dollars short in their funding, according to their numbers. Meanwhile, the, the TTC CEO gets a 21% increase. And, I mean, I've heard it from other people, and I've, I've heard it from from people in the know, you know, the city's bleeding money. We're coming out of the pandemic. Important decisions have to be made. We, we can't afford mistakes this go around with this incoming council that's going to uh, take office on October 24th. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, what can we do better? And uh, what do you see in terms of the budget for the city of Toronto? And I'll throw it to you. Okay. Um, so as far as budget goes, I think there's a lot of missed opportunities in the city for how our municipal government can make money in ways that don't involve simply raising taxes on, uh, on businesses and residents. Um, so in, in much of the world, um, you have 
transit station and you have on that same parcel of land significant commercial developments and even significant residential development. Here, the bulk of our transit stations are standalone one-story buildings with, uh, with no commercial um, real estate beyond a, a small convenience store. Um, so uh, the only, this, this, is, this is an interesting fact. So the only transit agencies in the world that actually turn a profit that don't have to be subsidized by senior governments is Singapore and Hong Kong. One might assume that um, the reason for this is because of the density of those cities, and that is true. But the foremost reason why they turn a profit is because they are first and foremost um, commercial developers. They're in the commercial real estate game, and secondary to that is the transit game. So the, the development is built, and the station is built in the development to have access to the development. So they make the bulk of their money from leasing out space to businesses. And I think the TTC should pursue that as a revenue source. I think it's massively underutilized, this land that they're sitting on, um, this very valuable property they have that simply is um, you know, nothing more than a, a throughput space. That's a, really, that's, that's a really good idea. That's really, really good. I like it. Yeah, like, you know, by the very nature of what they're used for, um, these are very high traffic areas. It's very valuable real estate. And I, I think that, that the city could generate a significant amount of revenue if they capitalized on that. Like, if you go to, you know, to go to London, you know, you see in the station concourse of the underground there, or more accurately, you see it in the big terminal stations, um, you see within the station, there's a pub, there's a coffee shop, there's takeout options, there's retailers, some of them even have clothing stores. You know, there's a lot of, you know, money running through that. That's economic activity, right? And more than just economic activity in terms of people having jobs and people being able to, um, to feed themselves and pay for their lives. Um, it's, uh, sorry, there's economic activity happening right behind me. It's okay. Okay. Oh, it was empty. Yeah, the trains come by here sometimes. Anyways, yeah, so um, more than just economic activity in terms of, you know, people being able to feed themselves and their families and be employed and all that, it generates uh, revenue, not in the form of taxes, but in the form of rent. Because the transit agency is the one that is renting the commercial space to these businesses to operate. But over here, because we're too risk adverse or... We are so single focused, you know, we don't think outside the box. We, it's, it seems like it's never really even entertained. Like, I've come to think of it, the only business I can think of that's not a convenience store um, inside subway stations that aren't Union Station would be um, the beef patty places at uh, Bathurst it, and Borden and the McDonald's at, at Dundas West. And Islington Station, it's not much, but there's a couple oh, of places. They have a dry cleaner or something there, don't they? There's a dry cleaner. I yeah. think there's a there's a there's a clothing shop, and there's a beef patty place. Yep. <laughs> there's actually well, two. Massive there's areas, two there's, you know, with yeah. with ground floor space available, and thousands and thousands of customers going through every single day. So mm-hmm. why are we just why aren't we using it right? And why are instead of capitalizing on this opportunity and having you know businesses set up shop and pay rent to the city as their landlord? Why are we instead um, focusing the bulk of our uh, budgeting revenues on property taxes? And uh, another, you know, even more short-sighted thing. Um, sorry, I'm trying to think of the word. Uh, the um, land transfer tax. That's the one. Land transfer tax. That's mm-hmm. a time bomb waiting to happen. And it's um, 
the, the entire land transfer tax as a source of municipal revenue is predicated on the idea that the cost of housing is only going to keep going up, right? Because every time a house is sold, you pay land transfer tax on the value of that. And so if the market ever tanks, then the city is going to tank revenue-wise as well. Um, so, you know, instead of relying on these um, these measures, which, uh, you know, to be crass, milk the uh, milk the residents and milk the businesses of the city, why aren't we, you know, renting out space to them in the TTC stations, right? I mean, I, I, people will say, okay, man, this carries risks, but, you know, it, it, all all investments carry risk. Absolutely. And so what, what I'd like to see is for the, the city to become a big player in the commercial real estate game. And um, what I'd like to see is uh, a dedicated office of investment management set up to handle this portfolio and deal with the day-to-day -day administration of leasing space to businesses within municipal property. I think everyone in this city that works for the city should go home and watch the founder uh, because McDonald's is not in the burger business. They're in the real estate business, as told in the movie. And huh. and so you've stumbled on something. I mean, it's it's already out there in terms of like McDonald's and stuff, but you can take that model and you can duplicate it or copy it or, or whatever it is and use that. And you're right. The city can do it. I, I can name a bunch of stations that have the space and and it's it. You're right. You're absolutely right. It, it's it's underused. It's not used. Whatever word you want to use. Um, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's another underutilized opportunity that we should be pursuing um, film shoots. So, um, you know, to shoot a, the major Hollywood production here, um, the cost to do so in permits is, is shockingly low. I looked up the schedule the other day myself and it seemed like it was you know, under a thousand dollars. And I emailed uh, the film office, Film Toronto at Toronto.ca, to confirm, you know, whether this was uh, per day or per vehicle or, or whatever it was. And and she said she clarified the cost is per permit issues. The co the cost is per permit issued. The cost does not change if production parks one vehicle or ten. The cost per permit is determined by what tier the production falls into. So there's three tiers of production. There's major Hollywood film. Um, there's a reality TV, which for some reason is different than the first one, and then a student film. So student film pays $500 for the permit, and then they don't pay any fees beyond that. The that major a... studio also pays $500 for the permit, plus $100, 100 to $300 in location permits. How so long is – sorry, I'm yeah, just going to jump in there. How long is the permit good for? Um, I, didn't, I didn't confirm that. Oh. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm assuming based on their, their needs that you know film studios, they – take as little time as possible but i mean if you if you're going to repeat the shot over and over and over and over again to get it right then that's what they do but the fact is that they can it, it sounds like you know block the streets for a significant period of time and and pay what's them pocket change like these are billion dollar studios right they rake in endless amounts of cash they can afford to, to drop more than a thousand dollars for a permit to block the streets for a whole day absolutely absolutely that's a that's a great idea to, to take a second look at that absolutely Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to get into participatory budgeting as well. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I remember hearing this on your interview with Sarah Kleimenhag the other day. Um, she had a great idea um, to open up the budgeting process to the general public and, and have it be more open and transparent. Um, so currently, um, you know, anybody can go onto the city's website and they can download the budget. They can comb through it themselves. Um, but they're not really told that ahead of time. 
Um, and if they are, it's, you know, it's not a public forum. What I want to have is to have, you know, the people be able to be in a public forum and publicly discuss what goes into the budget and be told explicitly, you know, what pays for what, how much these things cost, you know, have it be open and transparent, you know? So I'm not saying that, you know, if we have a referendum, we can scrap entire departments of the city's um, bureaucracy or, you know, boost funding to some, you know, trendy pet projects by 10,000%. Um, you know, I'm, I'm saying that we need to get the public involved with, uh, with how their money is spent. Absolutely. I, I, more transparency is, is what's needed. And I, I like the sound of that. Yeah. It's, it's all about transparency because this is a democracy and you know, the workings of government should be open. Um, you know, I, I don't just mean um you know being able to see what they're doing i mean being able to you know to inter intervene in some way right um so i remember i went to the city hall to go file my papers and this is a new development since um since i worked there a few years ago is now they have metal detectors and bag checks right so you, you can't get in to go see a counselor right you have to have an appointment and they treat you like you're a criminal there it's like no we, we pay these people you know we're the ones who employ them Right. Well, why are we being treated like we're threats just for walking into a building? Absolutely. So, yeah. And the, the security guard there, he even called it theater. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's more security theater that kind of extends from the airport security theater and the COVID security theater and just a whole bunch of reminders of rules and regulations about every little thing under the sun. So if I'm elected, I, I'll, I'll, I'll table a motion to get rid of that. I want to have the, the offices of government be open to the public. Absolutely. Uh, moving along, I want to talk about transit. You know, we've seen transit uh, expand into the north, into York Region, and I'm just wondering um, what you see in terms of uh, outside of your rapid bus uh, lane idea, um, if you would support uh, transit expansion uh, to Pill Region in the west, to Durham Region in the, in the east, and uh, anything you want to say about uh, the topic of transit. Yeah, so just waiting a bit for the train to pass. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as, um, you know, these major capital projects go, uh, I'm of the opinion that um, Metrolinks should subsume all of the uh, municipal agencies and run the whole thing as a single cohesive operation. That one of the biggest barriers to uh, getting around by transit in the GTA is having to cross municipal boundaries, having to deal with multiple um, agencies, right? You should be able to pay one fare and move across the entire region by whatever vehicle, whatever um, mode is the most efficient, right? You shouldn't have to change, you know, change modes every time you, you switch from a GO train to a TTC or the UP train. Like the UP train and the, the GO train, they run the same route, but for whatever reason, they're entirely separate fare structures. Right. It doesn't make any sense. So I, I think that Metrolink should subsume that. It would help simplify things, honestly. Right. Because they already do much of the major planning. Um, they seem to have a handle on being able to get things built. Um, you know, like they built the, the grade separation here, the, 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 um, the West Toronto Junction, seemingly overnight without any major, major um, hiccups. And they're finally building the Davenport Diamond Project, which was great. Um, good. Yeah. So as far as expansion into Peel or, or York, what have you, um, uh, my suggestion wouldn't be expand the subway that way. One thing that goes one stop at a time and, and takes, <coughs> you know, an hour to cross the whole city. 
um, my suggestion would be to better integrate the Go network with the TTC network. So instead of taking, for instance, uh, a subway from Union to Kipling and switching at St. George, you take the Go train that goes, woo, one big, you know, one big journey. Um, yeah, so uh, I think it's great that we're finally seeing some major construction getting underway. Um, you know, these are sort of partisan shots that, that Doug Ford for being the one to get it built are, are, are silly. I don't really care who gets it built and what their other policies are, uh, you know, the things that aren't transit. Just we have a backlog of, of construction. This Ontario line, it's 100 years in the making. We've been thinking about this and planning this and drawing on maps and you know, and saying how necessary it is for a hundred years. Well, part of the problem finally getting built now. Part of the problem is the last ten years. I mean, they've brought this conversation up again and again and again in um in, in council meetings. You know, David Miller he wanted the LRT. Rob Ford wanted subways. John Tory wanted Smart Track, and it just keeps going around and around and around. And only recently, maybe the last three years, have shovels been in the ground. Um, I can tell you, uh, I live in Ward 1, so I can tell you that shovels are in the ground up here, and it's complete chaos. I mean, I, I work on steels, right? So uh, to get home, I, I go west on steels. Well, Finch is all messed up. Islington's messed up. Kipling's messed up. Albion's messed up. Martin Grove is messed up. It takes me forever to get home unless I jump on the 400 and go in a big circle and get off at Weston Road. That's the only way home. And it takes forever because the 400 South is packed. Yeah, well, I mean, construction is disruptive. I think we all need to be adults about that and not, you know, demand we have infrastructure and then complain that it gets built. Like nothing happens overnight. Nothing simply appears, you know, when you wake up in the morning and it's ready to use. It takes often, you know, years and, and years of years and years of disruptions to get these things done. And so I'm just glad that something's finally being built. We've been quibbling so long about Absolutely. the details, about the fine print, about the ins and outs of which mode is better. And then, you know, during the, the Rob Ford years, you know, we got bogged down in this whole idea of, oh, what Scarborough deserves or doesn't deserve. And we started putting moralistic language on infrastructure projects. It's not productive, right? It's not productive to be going back and forth, back and forth, you know, canceling things and then redrawing things. So my, my position on, on transit is I'm not gonna cancel anything that's currently under construction. And whether it's good or bad, or it's gonna backfire in the future, it's just, as long as something is on the ground, you know, being able to be utilized. You know, we can go back and, and make some retrofits later if needed, but in the meantime, just get it built. I like that, I like that. Um, moving along, I want to talk about uh, the unhoused and affordable housing. I think they go hand in hand. I'm just wondering your opinion on what more can we do to help, uh, you know, to help the unhoused people and for the uh, affordable housing contingent, what more can we do? Uh, it's not like the TCHC is going to run out and, and build a bunch of uh, um, low-income apartment buildings. Um what more can we do? Uh, obviously, the status quo either hasn't figured it out or whatever they're doing is not working. And I'm, I'm interested to know your opinion. Yeah, so what we have in, in Toronto is, is less of an affordable housing problem and more of a housing affordability problem. And so cycling back to a point I made earlier about um, artificial scarcity in housing is 
that's the result of, of restrictive zoning laws that forbid construction in, in much of the city on these this missing middle housing that needs to, to take place. So um, my, my plan would be to um, to merge all of the residential zoning categories above um, single family homes, above detached into the residential multiple category, which is everything up to uh, four story multiplexes. Because if there's there's significant demand for housing, you know, of a mid-rise um, level that's not being met, right? So currently all the housing demand is squeezed into these places where it doesn't really make sense to have towers, right? These brownfield sites where you have only one road in and out and it's bordered by trains and, you know, it's, um, it's hard to get around by transit because there's only so much road space. If we free up the space in, um, you know, in the neighborhoods beyond uh, you know, much of the city, we, we cannot tap into that development and we can make housing more available and therefore cheaper because when you have restricted supply, you have price raises, right? And that's exactly what we have. Right. <clears throat> yep. And uh, I believe the, the stop is in your ward, correct? Yeah, the stop, the um, uh, Davenport, Perth Neighborhood uh, Community Health Center. Yeah, I, I went there for an event when I was running in the um, provincial election. I remember that one. Yeah, um, they, 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 they offer valuable services to the community. Um, you know, they have uh, the food bank. They have uh, some harm reduction stuff. Um, I will say they helped me in the, in the past. Um, you know, I, I needed a birth certificate and they assisted me and, and I really appreciate everything that they did for me personally yeah that's great and you got on your feet right yeah they helped you in the the journey to self-sufficiency exactly yeah yeah um i think also that um you know we need to be mature enough to understand that you know many people who are living uh, rough living on the streets living in the parks who are homeless um you know they, they have severe psychological issues they're not getting treatment for that are our mental health and drug rehabilitate addiction rehabil rehabilitation systems are, are totally inadequate to uh to handle the, the great and growing needs of people to get their get themselves into a right headspace where they can be productive citizens mm -hmm. right like I, I don't think that um you know a lot of these right-wing talking points of you know just demonizing the homeless with no real purpose they, they don't really think they go anywhere Right. Like, so either we're going to give them free everything, which is one side of the perspective, or we're going to just gonna shoot them or something. I don't know. That's the other side of the perspective. No, we, we need to be able to make sure that we have the um, the infrastructure within our society to get these people self-sufficient, you know, so they can be in a headspace where they're not having this lifestyle of, of stealing things and, and, and you, you know, selling them for drug money and, and having you know, mental breakdowns that result in, in destruction. And, you know, it's um, like, it's, it's really sad to think about sometimes when you really start to get your head around it, realizing that many of the people on the streets are people who simply have burned bridges, either through their own fault or through the fault of the people around them. Um, you know, at some point their lives started to fall apart. They fell through the cracks. Um, you know, they had friends or relatives they could stay with temporarily, um, you know, for, for one reason or another, those arrangements fell through, uh, their welcome wore out and it got worse and worse until they have, you know, nobody in their life who's, you know, willing to, to trust them to be in their home because right. it doesn't seem like 
the problems that got them homeless in the first place are, are going anywhere or are, are being resolved. Okay. Um, yeah. <clears throat> like, I, I don't think this, this idea of, you know, just having homeless people, um, you know, live in the park and, you know, just stay there indefinitely. I don't think it's productive. Right. I mean, for one thing, and you know, it created this massive mess. Like I remember I saw the, the Trinity Hellwood, the Trinity Bellwoods um, encampment. I remember going there on the day that um, it, was, it was finally cleared up, right? When the whole army of cops were there and the protesters were there and all that, the whole scene. And just seeing like how a few dozen people made uh, five dumpsters worth of, of garbage and stolen property and drug paraphernalia and just old clothes and just random stuff that you have no idea like rationally why they would like destroy, right? <laughs> Like, you know, it's, 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 it's harsh to say, but in, in society, there are always going to be some people, you know, who can't take care of themselves or can't, you know, live as, as functioning people. Right. I, 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 see, I see your point. I see your point. Um, moving along, I, I want to talk about uh, crime and police. I'm interested to know what you think uh, of the crime rate in Toronto. What maybe we can do better on a municipal level and then what's your opinion of the relationship between the city of toronto and the toronto police service um so i i think that there are some troubling recent developments with with crime in toronto um i'm, I'm not gonna you know post doom and gloom and, and say that everything's out of control and the streets are unsafe to walk i generally speaking don't feel unsafe walking around the streets um, but, you know, there have been a lot of high profile incidents over the last several months that uh, that point to um, a sense of chaos in the city. That, that woman who was set on fire at Kipling Station, I'm, I'm wondering, like, you know, how does he get so brazen? Right. How do we get to the point in society where someone feels comfortable you know, dousing a stranger or an acquaintance in, in lighter fluid and setting them on fire in, in front of everybody? Um, a few weeks ago, I was um, I was riding my bike through Garrison Crossing um, at Fort York, and I, I see a man chasing a filthy shirtless man who's carrying two bikes. And so it's immediately obvious that um, his bikes were stolen, and the person chasing him is trying to recover them. Uh, so he starts swinging the bike as a weapon, as a bludgeon. Um, and fortunately, this person was able to retrieve both bikes. But the person who's who owned the second bike... Um, he had a head injury, and I found out that this head injury was caused by a chunk of concrete being thrown at the back of his head. Oh. And this was in the middle of the day. There were several dozen people walking around. This was a you know, regular, nice neighborhood. It was Liberty Village. All the condo people were out walking their dogs, and you know, this person feels empowered to go and assault a total stranger, you know, potentially give them brain damage or even kill them for a bike it doesn't make any sense right so i, I think that you know we've kind of lost control of a lot of the plot in terms of crime it's, it's these, these petty crimes they add up right it creates a an atmosphere where antisocial people feel empowered to be destructive um and, and much of that is because the police seems to have stopped you know inter intervening with these kinds of things maybe it's because they don't really have any kind of um, you know, power under the Mental Health Act to get people who are obviously not right in the head into treatment, or maybe um, it's just a matter of, of numbers, you know, maybe it's apathy. Um, 
But, you know, I, I think that something needs to be done, you know, to try and, you know, dissuade the kinds of people who behave like that from being the way they are. Yeah. Um, I agree with you. More, more needs to be done. Um, it's, it's not enough. And like I said, it's, it's either that the current administration does not know what to do or whatever they're doing is not working. Um, moving along. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about uh, public health. Okay. Uh, I'm interested to know your opinion on um, how the, the city handled the pandemic on the municipal level and what we learned from the pandemic. And just just a question for you. Are we ready for another pandemic? Well, I, I think it's a major indictment of our society that, um, you know, the, the supposedly biggest, you know, most dangerous and severe and, and deadly disease we have um, predominantly affects uh, people who have um, vitamin D deficiency and obesity and basically anybody who's not, you know, 90 years old and already having multiple forms of cancer. You know, they're the ones who are predominantly affected by COVID, right? This just wasn't something that, you know, regular people who took care of themselves had to be afraid of. Like, even from an ethical perspective, and I think that these lockdowns and restrictions were just hugely unethical and, and destructive to people's lives. Um, you know, it, it didn't, it wasn't necessary. It didn't work from a public health perspective, right? We, we told people, you know, sit in your home indoors by yourself. Don't avoid sunlight. You know, just watch TV all day, every day. That's not health, right? That's not what healthy living looks like. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's not, not to even get into the, this idea of destroying people's bodily autonomy by telling them they have to take some drug they don't want or, you know, they lose their job, they lose their, their ability to feed their, their family. It's, it, was, it was awful. It was coercion. It was wrong. Um, so, you know, obviously I'd like to see um, this workplace vaccine mandate scrapped. I don't think that a, an employer, especially not the government, has any right telling anybody what to put in their bodies as a condition of their employment. I want to see that mandate scrapped, and I want to see the people who were fired as a result uh, brought back or given back pay because they were wrongly taken from their jobs, right? There's a, a personal medical decision that had nothing to do with anybody but themselves, and they were they were fired over it. Absolutely. Um, I agree with you yeah. 100%. Yeah, as, as far as public health in general goes, public messaging in general goes, I, I think that the, the single greatest development in public health in human history was uh, modern sanitation. Being able to have clean water and being able to have our waste separated from our water, it, it revolutionized things. We no longer have these waterborne diseases that used to ravage the whole neighborhoods, right? We don't have cholera anymore because we have clean water. So I suppose my public health investment would be to make sure that uh, Toronto Water has the resources they need to keep the drinking water clean. Um, yeah, and also uh, to promote, um, you know, more more outdoor living, more exercise. Um, you know, I think it's a shame that we have a lifeguard shortage right now. A lot of people don't really realize that. Um, you know, through the summer, a lot of the, the pools have reduced hours because they couldn't have, they didn't have the staff to, to guard them. Um, yeah. I didn't and much know of the that. reason behind that is uh, because um, you, your NLS, National Lifeguard Society, your certification, you have to renew it every two years. But of course, they couldn't renew it because the pools were closed. Right, the facilities needed to renew this license it was closed. 
And so the license expired. And because you now have more, fewer lifeguards, you have fewer people available to teach swimming lessons. So you're going to have more people drowning. Um, as far as how to unravel that, I, I think it's, oh, that's a tricky one, right? How to have more people trained as lifeguards when uh, we don't have the lifeguards right now to train them. Um, I, I suppose we could, we could, you know, free up some, uh, you know, some space by uh, reducing um, <clears throat> the requirements uh, necessary to guard waiting pools. So to be a waiting pool attendant, uh, I need a bronze cross and a CPRC. What I'd like to see is maybe drop that to CPRC, just first aid training, because you don't need waterborne rescue skills to, um, you know, to, to, to pull a, a toddler out of the waiting pool. Um, I, I used to be a lifeguard, so I'm, I'm familiar with all this stuff. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, getting the waiting pools open for a longer time, like currently they're opening open from uh, end of June through to Labor Day. It's, it's hot until October. It starts getting hot in May. Like if we can't have the staff during the daytime because they're at school and, you know, maybe we should consider opening them in the evenings and weekends. Um, you know, just having those facilities be more accessible. Um, and I suppose more recreation programming, right? Uh, more house league sports. I, I think the city could do a lot to try and get people involved in sports. You know, just taking care of their bodies, really. That's, that's the goal, right? That's how you have um, robust health. I agree. Uh, it, this interview has been great, uh, but, uh, you know, before we wrap, I, I want to uh, ask you, do you have a, a website that you are, are you working on it or is it complete? Yeah, so I have a website. Um, it's the same website I use for my provincial campaign. It's simonfogeldavenport.ca. Um, currently, the uh, municipal platform there is under construction, but you will see the provincial uh, platform archived on the page. But in the coming days and, and weeks and months, really, uh, there'll be more and more content updated there. Uh, I'm also on, on Twitter, at Fogel Davenport. Uh, last name, Davenport. Um, you can find me there. Uh, send me nasty messages or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, don't, um, don't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, productive conversations only. Absolutely. Yeah. Whatever, whatever it takes to get the job done. I hear that's, I hear that uh, train coming. Um, yeah. I just want to thank you so much for doing this interview with me. You know, um, I tell all the people I, I interview, you know, election night for me is like Christmas. I'm usually in front of the TV. I'm watching all the ward races, all the mural races, all, all across the GTA. Fortunately, this year I won't be able to do that because I'll be in North Carolina, but I'll still be watching on the computer. And uh, again, I, I thank you so much for this interview, and I wish you nothing but luck on your campaign trail. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be excited to see what happens next. Yeah, like Davenport's an open race, so I'm really not sure which way it'll go. Like, we don't have an incumbent here. Um, you know, most of the front runners, the other people, I haven't heard of them. Um, so I'd, I'd be interested to look up some of my, my opposition and see – uh, what their um, what their positions are, and uh, hopefully I'll I'll meet some of them tomorrow at a candidate information session. Absolutely, and good luck but with it's that. It's going to be a fun time. It's going to be a fun time, just like the provincial cam one campaign was. You know, I I really like just getting out and talking to people, and you know, letting them uh, you know speak their opinions. Like I've got um, this one man who's a regular at the coffee shop I go to all the time. Um, he's got a lot of opinions about uh, how we need to have more puddles in the city because 
uh, puddles bring insects and insects bring birds and birds feed the ecosystem and it's a whole ecological chain and he, he would sometimes go on for 20 30 minutes at a time with his speeches about puddles so i'm very much looking forward to meeting more people like that he might he might have something there <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, anyway, thinking about how we don't really see insects anymore in the city, do we? No, not really. Uh, anyway, listen, um, I, I've got to run, but uh, it, like I said, it's been great speaking with you. I wish you nothing but luck, and uh, I'll, I'll be paying attention. Can't wait to see what happens next. All right, take care.